the Yoga Sutra, we stopped in the middle of our commentaries to the Sutra number 33 from the chapter number two, number two which is a sutra that is fundamental, it is essential, and uh, I wish to remind that it is the sutra about Pratipaksha Bhavana, or the cultivation of the opposite thoughts. Last time I gave a thorough presentation of the importance of this great principle in spirituality, which basically makes possible the control of the mind, which makes possible the sublimation of the negativities of the mind, which is the typical yogic method for dealing with the negativities of the mind. The negativities of the mind are fundamental, please remember, because in most systems of metaphysical thinking, the mind is the highest power. Beyond the mind, we are having only the spirit. That is why if you can say that if my body is clean, if my etheric body is clean, if my astral body is relatively clean, but my mind is impure, then automatically I am going to do impure things, because my mind is the boss of my system in absence of Atman or the spiritual nature. That is why, even if I have a pure body, the mind is the one that rules. You can consider the fact that Adolf Hitler, or in my own country, Ceausescu, were vegetarians. And therefore, wait a second, a certain degree of purity on the low bodies does not necessarily supplement or guarantee that your actions will be right and that your decisions will be right. That is why the purity of the mind is actually much more important than everything else because it is on account of the purity or impurity of the mind that we do all the right or wrong things because for most people, the mind is running their lives. It's the way in which I think. It's my philosophy of life, my values, my way of thinking, which decides what I am going to do in life. It is true that for some people who are utterly undeveloped mentally, there may be that the decision, I'm sorry, that the emotions are the ones that decide. Such there are, uh, there exists a small number of people for whom the mind is simply too high, like they almost don't have a mind, a mental body, in the meaning of a Vigyana Mayakosha, and then it all depends on the emotions. And then the same problem is brought one kosha lower. If my emotional body is clean, I act in a clean way, and my life seems to be guided in pure ways, and if I'm having emotional impurity, then I am being guided in the wrong uh, way. But for most people, especially for the modern person who is relatively well-educated, and therefore through the very compulsory schooling system through which you have gone, willy-nilly, we are having for everybody a certain development of the mental body. 
And that is why this mental body is actually the root of a lot of issues. And therefore, Patanjali, who is concerned not so much with the physical and etherical things, there are almost no teachings concerning physical and etheric things in the Yoga Sutra. Patanjali is concerned very much with the bodies number three and four, especially with the body number four, teaching this mental yoga, this Raja Yoga, and there he looks very much into the emotions and into the functioning of the mind. And there he simply says, you must not tolerate mental impurity. And this is something so difficult to observe today, yet to, and to notice even, to remark. Last time I was telling that indeed you must not accept any negative thought at all for not creating the negative resonance and that there are methods of cutting it off mercilessly without dabbling into it or indulging into it for a second. And I have kept a long argumentation last time in which I have demonstrated that the people don't do that, not really because they can't, because there are very, very, very few people who are so imbalanced that they are so much on the brink of insanity that when they get hit by negative emotions or by negative thoughts, they simply can't stop it. Actually, almost everybody can stop it through one or another method. The problem is that people don't feel the need to stop it. It's like they don't feel that, hey, my life depends on it. I should really, really behave on this. People say, ah, yeah, it's true. I'm thinking in miserable ways. I'm thinking in very bad ways. But what can be so bad about it? Remember that the physical action which is negative is less important than a mental action which is negative for the very simple fact that the mind is higher, deeper, more powerful, closer to the Supreme Self, and therefore it is a greater issue. Remember that even Jesus, who was a very, very demanding spiritual teacher, he was not very vehement about things, sins which people did with the body, but he was adamant and furious at the sins which people did with the mind, such as hypocrisy, falsity, lying, thinking in deceitful ways, and other things like those, he considered those the real sins, and the yogic understanding of this is, of course, very clear, because, again, if you have a pure mental body, you see the truth, you do the right thing, even if, meanwhile, through your lifestyle you didn't know and you have created impurity in your body. But if you just purify your physical body and your mental body is terrible, then automatically, in spite of your physical purity, you will take all the wrong decisions and you will be guided by all this mental nightmare or hell which you allow. That is why, exactly as some of you, if you notice, hey, I'm stinking, I have to take a shower, it's like an inacceptable to be impure this way or that way, exactly in the same vehement way, you have to take action in terms of the mind, and even more so, 
Because remember, the mind is ultimately more important. When you will die, you will leave your physical body and your etheric body to rot and go away. But your astral body and mental body, you will take them with you. And therefore, the impurity which you have in your astral and mental body stays, while the one which is in the physical and etheric body is transient. It is ephemeral. Of course, we are very much aware in yoga that mens sana incorpore sano, that the physical impurity can gradually build emotional and mental impurity, and vice versa, and therefore that there should be a synchronization of effort. When you want to cleanse your mind and emotions, you also want to cleanse your body and pranic body, the physical body and the pranic body, the lower, the lower vehicles, because everything goes nicer. It is theoretically possible to cleanse your mind while you smoke, but it is more difficult. For example, Gurdjieff was having a crystal clear mind, although he was smoking cigars. Therefore, it would not be impossible. But yet in yoga, we always teach that if you want to cleanse your mind, you should also stop smoking because it goes much more easy, because the two can help each other or sabotage each other. This being said, it's a clear principle which I just wanted to remind. This being said, remember therefore that this story of Patanjali is actually very important for your life. If you will clean your body for the next 50 years of your life, you will have some collateral indirect good effects on your mind. But one day your body will die and you will not be able to carry it along with you. But if you will make efforts for the next 50 years to purify your mental body, that will stay with you. So it's like a higher currency. It's an effort which has a more direct productivity and increased productivity. And that is why purifying the mind is actually a big endeavor. We can say that spirituality is about purifying the mind. We can say that Buddha has a pure mind because he looks and he sees an old man and he sees an ill person and he sees a funeral and he suddenly says, wow, life is terrible. There are many problems in this life. There is a huge suffering in this life. I have to do something about it. We cannot tolerate to go into the grinder just like this, all head forward like the lemmings. Something must be done. How many people did not see funerals and ill people and so on? Many. But they did not react like this. They kept on their telenovela. They kept on with this stupid soap opera of life. Although they saw people dying, nobody thought, well, 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 wait a second, there is a deep philosophy in this simple fact. Like Mahabharata says, which is the greatest miracle on earth. Every day death is striking around us, and yet people live like they are immortal. This is a miracle, and this miracle is actually a mental impurity, because if you would be pure mentally, you would be like touched with a nettle, with a burning, with a stinging nettle. You would just stir up and you would say immediately, you would jolt up and you say, wait a second, life is having a very serious issue here, death 
is something which I inevitably sooner or later have to confront. Am I prepared for that? Why do I keep postponing this when nothing else is more certain in life than this? This is mental purity. That is why Anthony the Great, one of the fathers of the desert, when he thought of death, he went in the desert of Egypt, he dug a two-by-one hole, which was a tomb, in case you didn't get it, and he prepared, and he lived in that hole. And somebody who met him after years, when he lived in a hole in the desert, in a hole in the ground, they said, what are you doing, Anthony? And he said, since this is the inevitable end of life, I prepared myself for it. This is my tomb, and I'm living in it and waiting for death to come. Because that's the only inevitable thing which we know for sure. Therefore, actually Anthony was having a pure mind, because he was not sabotaged by all the other desires and dreams and fata morganas and glamour, which said, yeah, yeah, life, death is coming, but uh, let's uh, build the Eiffel Tower, meanwhile, because we need to have some occupation down here in this life. That is an impurity which simply says, forget, 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 you are hypnotized. Don't think about death, don't think about the future of your soul. Don't think about eternity. Don't think about what is relevant. Think about nonsensical things. If you have got a hundred thousand dollars, to leave them to your son as a heritage. Is that the problem of your evolution on this planet? That you should toil and work to pile up a hundred thousand dollars doing sometimes immoral and unethical things for all of that? <clears throat> so that you should leave it to your son who should leave it to his son and so on? This is a soap opera, it's a madness. It's something which no wise person would ever participate into. These are ambitions of the mundane mind, which are completely senseless. This is mental impurity. People who are hypnotized by this way of life, they don't think purely, because neither Ramakrishna, nor Sarada Devi, nor Milareva, nor Buddha, nor nobody, they have not been hypnotized by this. The great men and the great women of this planet, spiritually great, they have been great precisely because they were able to have this discrimination, to see clearly what is important and what is irrelevant or unimportant. And that is why this mental purity is actually a gift, because if you are mentally pure, you see, you see from your childhood this light, it's a bunch of illusions. I can see through it. There have been people like Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna, when he was seven years old, he started seeing through life and seeing that he was not like everybody else, that he wanted something else from his life. This is purity of mind. His Vijnana Mayakosha was pure. This was a great spirit born with a crystal clear mind and the mind was not fogged by all these strange desires and ambitions and limitations which blind the normal human being and create those problems. The biggest problem, unfortunately, is that people don't feel their Vijnana Mayakosha. It takes for those of you who practice yoga a number of days, weeks, or sometimes even months before you get to feel your etheric body. Not to mention that some people don't even feel well their physical body to start with. But to feel the etheric body, this flow of prana through the chakras, through the nadis, you build it up. All of you are getting to feel it very clearly. Then it takes an even longer time to feel your astral body, 
to feel this mysterious fluid energy of your emotions and of your emotional body and that is already where some people are stumbling but to feel the mental body that's already very far and that is why people don't have a feeling it's like the mental body is yes we call it a body which is made of energy Maya, kosha, but it's like very abstract this mental body, you cannot even say where the margin of it is. It's something so very abstract because it has the fluidity, it has the elasticity and the freedom and the subtleness of the mind itself. And that is why when we say people should purify the mind and the astral body as well, but with the astral body it's kind of more clear. People, it is easy for people to see, because people say, hey, is my astral body pure or impure? <clears throat> I can kind of find out that thing immediately. I'm looking at my emotions. If I'm all the time having all kind of negative, terrible emotions that I know that Ramakrishna wouldn't have had, that I know that Mahananda Mai wouldn't have had, that I know that Rumi wouldn't have had those kind of emotions, it's quite obvious. I am impure emotionally. My astral body still needs a lot of work because look, I'm going into these shitty emotions all the time and at least theoretically I know that those are unworthy emotions, are miserable emotions and if I would be tomorrow a bodhisattva or if I would be an enlightened being tomorrow, one of the things which I would immediately characterized as that situation, as that status, as that condition, as that state, is that I wouldn't have those miserable emotions. It's quite obvious, because I do not expect that Ramakrishna should be plagued by miserable emotions. That's why with the astral body, it is more easy to see, because the astral body is more gross, it is more obvious, but the mental body People even when they ask themselves, is my mental body pure or impure? It's very difficult for people to look upon their own men, my mental body, although a clear analysis could show that the mind is pure or impure. But it is much less obvious. And because it is much less obvious, it doesn't disturb us. If all the time I'm having some shitty thoughts, some impure thoughts, I'm saying, hey, yeah, right, my mind is a nasty mind, and that's it. I put up with it. I don't get upset that my mind is so miserable, that I'm full of cunning, that I'm full of doubt, that I'm full of mistrust, that I'm full of wickedness, that I'm full... And <clears throat> as long as my emotions are okay, it's kind of okay. No, it isn't, actually. It is a lack of discrimination because the mind is not very obvious and then I think it doesn't matter so much. But actually, in the big picture, the mind matters more even than the astral body because the mind is superior to the astral body and the mind is running the show, therefore, in terms of hierarchy of forces. That is why... This statement of Patanjali about Pratipaksha Bhavana is to be taken very, very seriously and because uh, this is the essential yogic method. 
As I have said yesterday, and I don't intend to go through all the ideas from the last time, not yesterday, as I said last time when I spoke about these things, uh, there exists another method of dealing with negativity, but that method is extreme, explosive, dangerous, very rare, and it is essentially a tantric type of method, a crisis type of method, which is generally not used. 99% of all the improvements that we do upon ourselves are done actually through Pratipaksha Bhavana, which simply means gradually, gradually, gradually correcting the negativities of the mind. I've actually decided to read a material about some aspect of the mind, the polarity of the mind, in terms of trust and mistrust, optimism and pessimism, just to show you that from the level of the mind, those are impurities. People consider them just uh, things which are acceptable because it's, they are so refined that they are like some sort of background of the spirit. Here is a text which is actually part of your teaching curriculum later, but I have found useful to evaluate these things for you at this point from a yogic standpoint so that you see that actually some of the currently accepted mental things are actually unacceptable from, unacceptable from the standpoint of a Jesus or a Buddha. And therefore, thus calling your attention a little bit more upon some things of the mind which secretly are governing your life because they are governing the samskaras and they are governing the karma. Therefore, and if they are in relationship with the karma, then they become the secret rulers of our hearts. First of all, you will, I will read an evaluation of some terms from normal psychology <coughs> in terms of yoga, interpreted from the standpoint of yoga and energy. I will simply read, I will not stop upon the... Uh, scholarly, high scholarly thing, I just want to make the point that from the standpoint of yoga, things which seem very simple in daily life and basic, they actually constitute a resonance at the level of the mind, and it is exactly as you would not allow yourself a resonance with some impure things, physically, etherically, and I hope even astrally, it is the same thing with the mind. That is why when Buddha defines the right course of action, he speaks about the right action, but also about the right speech and the right thought. Like, it is not enough to correct things at the level of simple physical action. Here are four or five terms analyzed in connection, starting from normal psychology and going in connection to yoga. Mistrust. Mistrust from the standpoint of yoga, and you all know if you are a mistrusting person, if you are full of mistrust, is a subtle resonance with evil energies manifested as lack of trust. The conviction that a state of fact hides more dark secret than it appears, and that the nice behavior of somebody has a hidden agenda, as expression of an elementary prudence or of a normal attitude of heedfulness, an attitude of mistrust can keep mistakes away, 
an exaggeration of mistrust though, stops any initiative, blocks the spiritual progress, and sometimes shows either an exaggerated and egotistic preoccupation for personal security, or a lack of goodwill and adhesion towards those around us who, due to their yoga practice, may show clear signs of progress, such as inner harmony, health, happiness, fulfillment. Even in a spiritual community, funny enough, people can have mistrust to each other and more, and this is Again, a negative resonance, an evil resonance, which some people say, what can I do? I am mistrustful. It's not true. From the standpoint of Buddha, it is inacceptable. It is unacceptable to just say, this is my nature. It is something which we can work upon. And this is why Pratipaksha Bhavana is so important. And this is why it's so difficult to deal with it. Because these are things which we take for granted. But that's exactly where our spiritual work wants to go. Optimism, from Latin optimus, or the best, predominant vision that determines in us the resonance with subtle beneficial energies from the macrocosm. According to the optimist view, reality is capable to show the way to a continuous perfecting and to happiness. The world and the human being endlessly evolve spiritually and go toward a better future. That is why the mere fact that you believe in the possibility of evolution is actually a form of optimism. The people who are not optimistic in the pathologic way, they can't even see the possibility of evolution. The world and the human being endlessly evolve spiritually and go toward a better future. Closely related to the theories of moral and spiritual progress, the theory of optimism says that the human being has the possibility to get close to the ideal of good and justice, which will eventually win over evil and injustice. The human being is capable of an unlimited mental and spiritual development and can attain the ideal of lasting happiness. The theories of optimism have been promoted by human beings from all kinds of backgrounds that were positively oriented and in full spiritual ascension. Some idealistic theories admit the existence of an ideal good and justice, but attribute them only to a world beyond, like it can be good and just only when you die, only in the other world, the kingdom of God. Even though the Christian philosophers of the Middle Ages considered that eventually evil will be removed, they mistakenly believed that good can only win in paradise. During terrestrial life, the human being is predestined, they said, to suffering caused by past sins. Such an optimist is partial and false, an equivalent to a pessimistic view, since it considers that it is impossible to eradicate evil and that terrestrial human life is destined to pain. Continuing, therefore, even theologically, some theologies are pure and some are not that pure after all. Continuing the tradition of the sages of antiquity who promoted optimistic views, the theories of optimism were further developed by the thinkers of the Renaissance and in the works of some German idealists, especially Leibniz, 
who considered our world as, quote, the best and most beautiful of all possible worlds. The theory of Leibniz is basically a purely optimistic theory that this is the best and most beautiful of any, of all possible worlds. It's like you are here and now in paradise if you want. It's here and now. Yoga is based upon a theory which is steadily optimistic. This vision is built upon faith in the future and the possibility that good, happiness and justice can win. All these are possible by knowing and following objective divine laws of the macrocosm. Contrary to the idealistic, philosophical and utopian viewpoint, which can be more or less mistaken and can even create the background to promote moral and physical evil, the yogic vision promotes an active understanding of optimism, since it requires from its adepts to actively fight against evil and injustice, against the real causes of unhappiness, and to consciously awaken and amplify in themselves the divine good and harmony. That's what yoga is. That's why yoga is deeply optimistic, and it is an active optimism which says, do something about it, because you can do something about it. This creates the premises of happiness, both for those individuals and for the individuals who come in contact with these adepts. The yogic optimist is not utopianism, according to which happiness would come all of a sudden without any personal effort. On the contrary, in the yogic ethics, optimism, which is illustrated by Santosha, as you probably know by now, is a concept based upon a great faith in God and in life. This view creates an intense focus upon perfecting the present moment and brings about a crusade against the old and outdated, the mistaken or not good anymore, and against obstacles and deficiencies of all kinds. Um, an optimistic person who correctly practices yoga is not a passive dreamer, but an individual who is actively involved both in building his personal happiness and the happiness of others who have this aspiration. In this sense, the, in yoga, the optimistic theories are a powerful mobilizing factor. These theories promote a complete faith in God and in His beneficial, harmonious, positive, almighty energies that contribute to the quick development of the creative capacities of the human being, to the formation of growth of positive moral qualities. Optimism is a conception about human being, life, goodness, happiness, harmony, God, which postulates the possibility that the human being can attain spiritual perfection, can continuously improve his life, can attain happiness, can evolve mentally and morally. The yoga system has a totally optimist vision, which is at the same time fully possible to validate through direct experimentation, when the adept attains the blissful state of cosmic consciousness known as yoga as samadhi. Yoga postulates that it is possible for a human being to attain absolute happiness. Optimism is also a personal trait of character that consists of a predominant resonance with subtle beneficial energies of the macrocosm, doubled by a tendency to focus upon and understand the good aspects of the world, to expect good, happiness, divine affection, health, harmony. 
By this conclusion, <clears throat> we can say that optimism is a moral concept and an existential attitude that is predominantly opposed to pessimism. Optimism is focused upon the fact that the human being has a divine right, an endless possibility to attain happiness, health, evolution, self-contentment, and the harmonious development of his being. This vision allows a skillful directing of the human destiny towards a target that conforms to the individual's aspiration. Optimism represents a state of mind and a philosophical postulate at the same time, which conceives the universe as a perfect aggregate, like Leibniz was making it, or as a reality that naturally tends towards moral and spiritual perfection. As trait of character, optimism represents the attitude through which the individual evaluates everything that exists around him, facts of life, persons, activities, relationships, situations, as being fundamentally positive and envisions them in a solvable perspective. Everything has a solution. A cheerfully confident behavior favors such a perspective due to the harmonious activation of Anahata Chakra. Therefore, it is obvious that in the moment when you are truly and deeply pessimistic, you cannot practice any form of spirituality. That's why to be truly, truly pessimistic means to have a horrible karma in a certain way, because you can't even bring yourself to believe that it is possible for you to reach emancipation, to reach happiness, to reach eternity to reach salvation. That is why, as you can see automatically, optimism means positive resonance in the mind, and it means a positive, uh, I'm sorry, a pure mind, a mind which is uh, the fruit of this control over the negativity, and on the contrary, as you are going to see, unfortunately, pessimism represents the opposite. That is why the lesson is immediately, if you are predominantly pessimistic, you have impurities in your Vijnana Maya Kosha. Eliminate them, work upon them, because they manifest as bad karma. They simply manifest as hooks that hold you hooked, that hold you back, that simply keep you from your evolution and from doing the best that you could do. Pessimism as opposite from the Latin pessimus, or very bad, the worst, predominant vision that creates in us the resonance with evil energies of the macrocosm, but it's at the mental level, it's evil or impurity mentally, that reframe everything to a picture in which evil, injustice and suffering predominate and are in fact inevitable, any effort against them being futile. As a result, progress is impossible. Pessimism is opposed to optimism and reflects a lack of spiritual perspective and the situation of crisis or decadence. That is why in Christian mysticism the highest of all sins is not murder. It's not even, I don't know what other bad one you can conceive. There exist in the Christian theology sins which are sins, mortal sins, deadly sins, whatever, sins against the Holy Spirit, and the worst of those on top of everything, much worse than murder and anything else, is very paradoxical for somebody who does not understand the mind 
and the true human evolution. It is hopelessness. Because the man or the woman who has lost any hope in salvation will be a murderer and everything. In the, that's a package deal. We are kept on the path precisely because we have the hope and there is something optimistic in us which is the purity of our mind. And in the moment when the impurity goes beyond a certain level, the decadence becomes total. The decadence of the human being becomes total. That is why we should truly take good care of the purity of our mind, because a lot is at stake because of it. Pessimism is opposed to optimism and reflects a lack of spiritual perspective and the situation of crisis or decadence. The pessimistic mentality is also found in people that are confused, unhappy, unbalanced or oriented towards evil. That is actually the reason for which people commit the evil. Because people would not commit evils if they would be optimistic, if they would hope for something better in their lives. These phenomena occur especially in the epochs that are materialistic during wars or natural disasters when the faith in God tends to fade out. In the last century, pessimism was, for example, represented by the German philosopher Schopenhauer and in the modern epoch, pessimism is present in the erroneous concept of some of the existentialists and neo-Thomists and others, philosophically speaking. Pessimism is also present in the works of some great contemporary artists, often being the result of the conflict between their inner ideal of perfection and the painful reality of their life. From the moral point of view, pessimism promotes fear of future, desperation and uselessness. Do you, are you afraid of the future? You feel desperation? You feel useless? And uselessness? Those are terrible poisons of the mind. Identify them. Do not accept them. In the moment when you feel desperation and fear of future, you should jump up as if somebody touched you with a red-hot piece of iron. Exactly as if somebody would touch you with a physical piece of shit, you would not stand the contact with it for a second, and you jump up and separate from it. Then why should you accept the concept with such things? Like you accept and say, well, what could I do? I am having a fear of future. It is unacceptable. Jesus does not have any fear of future. Buddha does not have any fear of future. That is why, remember, those things which we consider, ah, they are just human flaws like this, they actually represent the root of the problem. They are the impurities of the mind, because of whom, because of which, we take all the wrong decisions and do, we do all the silly things. <clears throat> the final conclusion of this vision, which is based on fear of future, desperation, usefulness, is suicide. All these states are awakened and sustained due to subtle resonance with the invisible energies of evil, suffering, unhappiness, fear, egotism, hate. The pessimist is ultimately an antisocial person who due to his egoism refuses or represses his love, cuts off his own creative capacities and closes down all possibility of salvation 
from unhappiness, pain, or failure, at the same time standing against the creative efforts of others. Yoga rejects the pessimistic vision of the world and is against pessimistic mentalities because it considers them as being contradictory to the truth. Such mentalities represent an obstacle to physical and spiritual progress. By permanently promoting optimism in all situations, yoga does not deny the fact that at certain moments when we are not strong enough, evil might get the upper hand and can even temporarily win over the good which is still weak in us. At the same time, yoga does not deny the existence of suffering and pain, the possibility of failure, the inevitability of fighting with hardships and so on. Starting from a lucid analysis of these phenomena from the perspective of the divine laws of nature and recognizing the spiritual and moral progress that takes place eventually, the yogic ethics permanently promotes the optimistic viewpoint. According to this, we need to fight against evil and not accept it passively. The human being has the capacity to resonate with subtle divine energies that give happiness, harmony, health, and thus we can win over disasters and become happy through beneficial actions and creative combativeness. Pessimism as negation of optimism includes any attitude that sustains the priority of evil over good, of pain over pleasure, of unhappiness over happiness, and that claims that human beings are weak and impotent against evil and degradation. As conclusion, we can say that pessimism is a vision that is opposed to optimism. From the ontocosmologic aspect, pessimism promotes evil, with which the pessimist resonates almost continuously and most of the time unconsciously, as a creative principle of the world. In this vision, the world is destined to remain to its own nature unfulfilled, absurd, imperfect, since it inherently contains the seed of discord, self-destruction, and lack of authenticity. At the ethical level, the pessimistic vision negates the possibility that the human condition can improve. In, the, in this view, the human condition is a flaw, and human life is an irremediable and useless fight against suffering, unhappiness, illusion, and vice. From these premises follows a to total lack of trust in the future of humanity and the negation of the possibility of spiritual progress. By analogy with this ethical significance of pessimism, sometimes the term Gnostic pessimism, attributed to various versions of skepticism or agnosticism, is used. These theories, because some people hide and they say, I'm not a, a pessimist, I'm just agnostic or skeptical. As a careful analysis, these are just pathetic excuses for just favoring other poisons of the mind, which are the cousins of pessimism. These theories negate, partly or totally, the possibility that the human being can know for sure the truth and its immortal essence, the spirit, Atman, and thus attain self-knowledge, being most of the time a critical reaction against the limitations of a naive, non-critical and mystifying optimist, pessimism is equally unilateral because it takes some historical and particular limits, considers them to be absolute and attributes them to humanity in general. Pessimistic trends are found in some archaic myths 
For example, the legend of Gilgamesh, the semi-divine king of Erech in Babylonia and Persia, as well as in the myth of Pandora's box, uh, the myth of the original sin from the Bible, all of them are pessimistic ideas, pessimistic philosophies. And pessimism is embedded in the philosophies of the Stoics as well. One of the most notorious expressions of pessimist doctrine in modern times appears in Schopenhauer's philosophy, is not the only one, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche and Alza, and uh, the existential lists, of course. Another definition, just two more to go, and then the conclusion. Skepticism, negativist and limiting philosophical doctrine originating in Greek antiquity. A long history, skepticism has taken many forms whose essence is to doubt, not to negate, the possibility that human beings can reach the truth and attain happiness and harmony, or to clearly discern good from evil, just from unjust. Skepticism is mostly found in periods of inner crisis and spiritual decadence and has promoted relativism and agnosticism in the field of knowledge. In essence, ethical skepticism puts under a question mark the objective significance, the value of truth or the real efficiency of the moral representations. Contemporary representatives of today's skepticism argue that moral representations of people do not reflect the objective reality, therefore cannot be appreciated as true or false, having only a functional role. Skepticism generates a moral attitude that doubts the possibility of a man to know the truth about good, justice, spirituality, and puts under question mark the efficiency of any conscious effort to attain spiritual perfection. Personal situations of life, the influence of education, and especially of skeptical philosophical concepts, leads to the apparition of the skeptical individual, characterized by mistrust about truth, depreciation of the spiritual and generally of the divine ideals, like, ah, it's not so important this or that, ideals, permanent doubtfulness regarding oneself and the others, heightened egoism, distrustful and undecided attitude, passivity. Essentially, the skeptic represses his love and most of the time remains in a permanent expectation because he does not trust himself and he does not trust in the equity and possibility of attaining various sublime purposes. Such a person does not get involved in the effort and life of other people and often can be an obstacle for the others in their effort to grow spiritually and to take action. This is a poison of the mind, a serious, which is accepted. Everybody is supposed to be skeptical. We actually have turned it to the law. Descartes, who is the example of a man who is mentally handicapped from this standpoint, because Jesus does not have any of this, neither does Buddha, neither does have Laleshvari Devi, Descartes promotes it as a principle. Dubito ergo cogito. I doubt, therefore I think. For him to think means to doubt. For Jesus to think doesn't mean to doubt. For Buddha to think doesn't mean to doubt. For Milarepa or for Maananda Mai to think doesn't mean to doubt. Therefore, the, this very thing that to promote doubt at the level of a virtue is actually a mental impurity. That's why we live in Kali Yuga. That's why everybody is impurified mentally and we have to sort out these things 
That's why you work spiritually upon those things. The yogic vision is opposed to skepticism and considers that the moral representations are a specific form of the divine consciousness, which one way or another reflect the objective conditions of existence of all the supreme laws of the macrocosm. Moral representations do have a content of truth, and the spiritual progress represents the criteria of appreciation of the justness of ethical truth. The fact that often during the history of mankind the moral representations were false or deformed is for skeptics a proof of the impossibility to know the moral reality of one's actions and duties. The yogic conception estimates that inasmuch as the moral representations have a divine objective character, they are based upon reality, expressing the demands of the individuality, and give true knowledge regarding the moral phenomenon, helping man in the knowledge of his own requests, in developing the power to discriminate between good and bad, justice and injustice, and allows him to analyze in full awareness his duties and to consciously choose his path in life and to establish his behavior. A man educated in the spirit of divine morality rejects skepticism. Without blindly believing in illusions, he is convinced of the possibility of continu to continuously develop and grow up spiritually through an active participation to the divine life and reality. And the last definition after which I'll draw the conclusion, it's much shorter than the others, because the big ideas have been listed already. Suspicion, mistrust that blocks resonance and empathy, doubt about the sincerity, correctness and intentions of somebody's actions. A hunch usually has little evidence, while a fair accusation is always based upon proven facts. As opposed to these, suspicion is a legitimate doubt pointed out by coincidental facts, doubled by a clear conviction that a certain person can be suspected based on data from previous experience. When it has a factual ground, suspicion could be a tool to find the truth. When it has no ground, it leads to a state of continuous uncertainty, of mistrust, such as, for instance, in the case of jealousy, even in spite of clear proof that points out the contrary of what is suspected. In such cases, suspicion usually explodes violently in unjust accusations and insults. If not corrected by lucid analysis, love, intuition and intelligence, suspicion can lead to negative, dangerous manifestations. And a small conclusion. Why do some people easily win over distress, serious illness and even death, overcoming them through a daring and persevering action, and other people give up so easily in front of pressures created by life's tests that destiny has in store for them? The yogins consider that all this is related to personality. An optimist, due to a constant resonance with empowering beneficial energies and due to a gigantic trust in God, will always succeed to get to the other shore, while pessimists, due to the constant resonance with subtle evil energies that induce weakness, passivity and mistrust, are tempted to not act at all and to give up in the middle of the lake. The optimist and the pessimist personalities have totally opposite perspectives upon life because the inner microcosm of each of them receives through resonance predominantly and specifically subtle energies from the macrocosm. 
the pessimist resonates with and accumulates predominantly subtle evil and distressing energies, and the optimist resonates with and accumulates especially subtly ben subtle beneficial and harmonizing energies. The experience and tradition of the yogins have confirmed the fact that optimism can be learned. That is the cornerstone of all of it. To be optimistic means by positive choice, positive images, divine thoughts and aspirations, favor positive inner states due to resonance with subtle beneficial energies from the macrocosm, at least to the same extent that negative images and evil thoughts induce negative inner states. Depends only on us what we choose. Therefore, I have gone through all this longer material, it's part of a teaching material, I have gone on this occasion to show that actually if you think in this way, there are very big amounts of mental impurity in every human being. That's why it is more difficult to deal with the impurities of the mind, and that is why people should have a certain degree of discrimination. Again, we would not put up with impurity physically, but we accept impurity mentally. But the physical body is much, much further from our soul, so to speak, from our Atman, at least, our Supreme Self, than the mental body. Therefore, if we physically, almost vehemently re re reject dirt, then why should we accept it mentally? That is why, in spirituality, this is an important issue, and that is why I insist so much on this story. Remember that dealing with the mental impurities is a very, very important task. Let me see, because some interest. So, by continuing, Patanjali has one sutra which continues a little bit this idea. He just said it in one sutra, the whole solution to this human purification and evolution issue, he has just said it very, very, in a very, very simple way. And in the sutra number 34, he explains a little bit more because it's such a deep subject. It says, these evil thoughts, such as violence and others, he just opens a very long list, whether done through oneself, through others, or approved, are caused by greed, anger, and ignorance. They can be either mild, medium, or intense. The Pratipaksha Bhavana starts from realizing that these evil thoughts result in infinite pain and ignorance. This is why it is necessary to evoke their opposites with even greater intensity. I have mixed some words of commentary, some clarifying words. This is also one of the longest sutras of the whole Yoga Sutra. It has to say, let's analyze a little bit the meanings, although it should be quite clear after the long commentary which I gave to the sutra number 33. Sutra number 34. These evil thoughts, such as violence and others, whether done through oneself, done through others, because that's also you are doing, or approved, 
even the approval of them is part of it, are caused by greed, anger, and ignorance. He names the kleshas, the impurities of the mind. They can be either mild, medium, or intense. That's a typical thing in Indian philosophy, to divide things in three degrees. Three is a very good number for them, and things are like mild, medium, intense. So you can have mild, medium, intense, ignorance, hatred, and the others, and these are generating mild, medium, or intense, violence, or whatever else they generate. Pratipaksha bhavana, and this, because the first part is purely a psychological analysis, that they are due to this and this, and they have even degrees of manifestation. That's clear and simple, and it's pure splitting of the hair. But the second half of this sutra is fundamental mentally. Pratipaksha bhavana, the fact that you fight against your negativities, starts from realizing that these evil thoughts result in infinite pain and ignorance. That is why it is necessary to evoke their opposite with even greater intensity. As long as you do not realize the fact that these things are causing, as Patanjali says, infinite pain and ignorance, you will not be motivated. You will simply tolerate these impurities, which again, physically, you would not tolerate. And yet, mentally, you would tolerate them, although it is so much more offensive to your existence, to your harmony, to your balance. People would go to a Rolling Stone concert and roar like animals and grimace their face like Mick Jagger and all kinds of ugly, hateful, despiteful grimaces, and they would consider it not a problem if you immerse yourself into a hard rock Metallica type of environment where you cultivate all kinds of negativities and so on, but the same people would not take a dip in a basin full of shit. Funny enough, they would take a dip into a mental basin full of shit. This is a lack of discrimination, like we put the body as more important than the mind, while the reality is the other way around. That is why it is necessary to convince yourselves when you realize that indeed this is one of the roots of the evil and problems, as Patanjali says, result in infinite pain and ignorance, then you will have the motivation of not accepting these things for a single second, because from a certain standpoint they are unacceptable. You do not want to accept those. Even the fathers of the desert, who are highly moral human beings, there are repeated stories about some of them who did some mistake, and because of their mistake, because people are human and frail in some situations, because of those mistakes, their own mind was accusing them. Oh, you did that, you are going to go to hell, you are guilty. And these people, although their moral discipline involved that they should be industrious spiritually, ascetic, full of tapasya and other things, and that they should be very humble, these people had to practice that they would not accept those suggestions from the mind. They would say, no, I didn't. It's none of your business, mine, to think those kind of things. 
No, I didn't. You are blaming me. You did something and now you have to pay. No, forget about it. Don't tell me that. Even that suggestion, I will not accept. Milarepa had to bring himself to accept that he was free because Milarepa in his youth killed 35 people. If Milarepa would have listened to this mechanical voice of his conscience, which is not the consciousness itself, the Atman, but which is just the mind acting robotically and mechanically, Milarepa should have blamed himself for every day of his life. You have killed 35 people, you are a monster. And yet Milarepa managed to declare himself innocent, which simply says Milarepa forgave himself, first of all. And that is why, again, these kind of thoughts and these kind of things, they have to be fought desperately and vehemently, because they are a much bigger evil than if you didn't take your morning shower, or even if you didn't do your morning kriyas. If you didn't do your morning kriyas, it's not good for your health. But if you are accepting all this mental impurity, it's not good for lifetimes over lifetimes. Therefore, you have to meditate carefully and discriminate over those things. And I take the opportunity that this being said, it's all a matter of motivation. It is Pratipaksha Bhavana starts from realizing that these evils result in pain and ignorance. If you realize that, then you will be, become their enemy, the enemy of these poisons, and you will practice strictly this anti-negativity yogic policy. If not, you will make compromises, and that is where the problems start. And then Patanjali, starting with Sutra number 35, has a long line of thought, which will, through which I will go very, very quickly and very, very easily. So I will take the opportunity to close it down tonight, thus closing down the whole second chapter, because Patanjali does nothing more starting with 35, but to tell us about the yamas, niyamas, pranayamas, and the others. And these are such elementary things, every one of you has studied them in the first month of yoga. And that is why, again, the Sutra number 35 is about Ahimsa, non-violence. You have got a full evening about Ahimsa. You have got a one to two hour lecture on Ahimsa. So I'm not going to repeat here something which has been done thoroughly. I cannot say here anything more about Ahimsa than what has been already said in the first month course. And that is why these sutras, I will skip them as something which is natural, of course, and which is well, well known by anybody who has done the beginning stages of yoga. Sutra number 35, by becoming firmly established in Ahimsa, there is abandonment of any hostility in his vicinity. That is Buddha Siddhi, the fact that even animals and human beings can lose their aggression, their aggressiveness, when in the presence of a person with a strong ahimsa, that has been already said in your lecture as one of the final coronations of ahimsa. So Patanjali goes directly to the ultimate effect. He doesn't dabble what ahimsa is. Everybody should meditate on what non-violence and non-harming is, but he simply gives you the positive part of it, being faithful to this yogic optimism. If you will practice non-violence, you will manage to destroy aggression in you and in others. Sutra number 36. 
on becoming firmly established in truthfulness, satya, the actions and their results become entirely dependent on him, which means bhaksidi, that the words of such a perfect satya person become true, they become laws of nature, that is the psychic speech, the capacity of prophecy, of telling things which become reality, of blessing and having the power of speech. The speech becomes infallible, basically. 37. On becoming firmly established in asteya or non-self, all gems or richnesses come by themselves. The interpretation of this is triple and has been given to you during the lecture on asteya that by practicing no theft, there will come all kinds of paranormal benefits to the person. On becoming, 38, on becoming firmly established in Brahmacharya, which is the sexual continence, the great virya or strength is gained, efficiency. Brahmacharya is the one which gives us the efficiency, the strength, the virya. Again, quite obvious it has been commented. 40. From purity, I'm sorry, 39, I have skipped that. On becoming firmly established in non-possessiveness or aparigraha, there arises the exact knowledge of the how and why of the birth. Commentators translate this in various ways. Some say that Patanjali says that you will know your previous births like Buddha did just the second before getting enlightened. And some see, say that Exact knowledge of the how and why of the birth means to understand who you are and why you are existing on this planet, why you are here today and in this lifetime. This has also been explained thoroughly in the lecture about Aparigraha. As you can see, Patanjali does not bother to explain all the issues of non-violence or of no-theft. Or he just goes to the final effect. He gives you the, he puts the carrots in the carrot in front of you, he gives you the motivation. Do this and you have the perspective of fulfilling a great goal through this moral virtue. And he does the same with all of them. And we can afford to continue a few more minutes. Number 40. From purity or shaucha there comes wise detachment from one's body and absence of the desire of contact with others. This is again commented in the lectures, the wise detachment from the body and at the same time control over its mechanisms and some commentators also say or comment, translate because the meanings here are a bit dual, absence of desire of contact with the others. Uh, this is the typical ascetic interpretation of Patanjali in which Patanjali says, for example, if you are very, 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 very pure, you won't want to make love with anybody, because you are so pure that making love with a normally impure person will be like an offense to your purity. That interpretation is not a tantric interpretation. The complete hatha-yogic interpretation of it is, again, wise detachment body, control over its mechanisms. 41. By the practice of sattvic purity, one acquires high-mindedness, one-pointedness, control over the senses, and becomes fit for the vision of the self. So here you can see 
that Patanjali mysteriously uses two sutras for Shaucha. He did not go to Santosha and he continues. He says, by the practice of sattvic purity. So he insists the word, the key word here is sattvic. He says there is purity of different levels, purity of the body, purity of the etheric body, purity of the astral body and so on. But sattvic purity is like the highest purity, the purity of the highest order. And then he adds to the effects. The highest type of purity, which again is connected with Pratipaksha Bhavana, this is how you obtain it. There is a purity which comes through the normal Kriyas. You purify yourself by doing Vamana Dauti and what else you do. But at the same time, there is a purity of the thought. Calls here a start purity to the levels going to the higher bodies. Whereas high mind, high mindedness, being skeptical, depressed, negative, fearful minded. Once, according to Patanjali, even the concentration of the mind is the result of purity. Control over the senses, the Hatha Yogic interpretation, control over the mechanisms of the senses, and becomes fit for the vision of the self. That is why in the lecture on purity, we have been given all the references where purity is good for longevity, vitality, and the lower health, and the lower things, but it is also a thing which addresses to the emotions and the mind, and that has a much further range or scope. 42, the second, Niyama Santosha. Unexcelled happiness comes from the practice. He calls unexcelled ananda or bliss. The of the schizophrenia You cannot have content as long as your mind is full of negative issues. Forty moves in by practicing or tapa, the impurities are descendants or cities of the body of the sense organs. In the lecture on tapas, these things are explained in detail. The fourth of the niyamas is illustrated in the sutra number 44 by Svadhyaya, which is the study of spiritual teaching, self-study, communion with the implied deity or Ishta Devata is being or being is brought about. In the lecture of Svadhyaya, which is coming in the first month cycle tomorrow, if I remember correctly, this is illustrated again. It's a very, very clear implication and it is a very peculiar way of putting the truth, but again here Patanjali wants to give one of the high results, one of the motivating results for that. And finally, the Ishvara Pran, perhaps the highest of all the ethical virtues, which we generally term as aspiration, aspiration for God, aspiration for ever, spiritual aspect, and it can be translated as complete surrender to the divine as well. He illustrates it obviously, and all know this because it's again said in the first month lectures. Success in Samadhi comes by complete surrender to God or Ishvara Pranidhana. Success in Samadhi, Samadhi is the result of Ishvara Pranidhana. And therefore, with this, Patanjali has actually gone through Yama and he has presented them quickly. You are benefiting of a longer presentation of them in the lectures, but the more important thing for today was to finish the Pratipaksha Baba and its issues. Actually, there are a few sutras left, but I feel it is too late already, 
and it was enough for tonight. There will be a few sutras which quickly, quickly, maybe not so quickly, some of them require some sedation. We will go in the beginning of next lecture, because he continues with the description of what is asana, what is pranayama, what is pratara. He basically keeps talking about his eight stage stages of yoga, and uh, thus he will cross immediately to the chapter number three, which is perhaps the most practical chapter of the Yoga and uh, the most tantalizing at the same time. With this I will stop here, I will go other ones in the asanas and the others in our next meeting. I would like now to stop with a small meditation on Ajna Chakra.